scholar Daniel Goldhagen and my response then and my response now is why would I read Daniel Goldhagen you, you, you say he is a scholar so what area of knowledge did, did he actually advance and so I just simply looked up his uh, Wikipedia entry Daniel Goldhagen is most famous for his book Holocaust, Hitler's Willing Executioner. So it came out in 1996. And his work doesn't break any new ground. He simply reiterates other people's work and gives it a particularly emotional overview. So here is the response to Daniel Goldhagen summarized in his Wikipedia entry. Scholars such as Yehuda Bauer, Otto Kolker, Israel Goldman asserted long before Goldhagen the primacy of ideology, radical anti-Semitism, the corollary of an inimitability exclusive to Germany. So Daniel Goldhagen's book, Hitler's Willing Executioners, which argues that uh, ordinary Germans you know, were happy to sign on with the, the Holocaust, right, was a publishing sensation, but was despised among academics, right? So the book was a publishing phenomenon, but was widely criticized by historians who called it ahistorical, and according to Holocaust, Raoul Hilberg, totally wrong about everything and worthless. So due to its generalizing hypothesis about Germans. It's been characterized as anti-German that uh, carrying out a Holocaust against the Jews was just an inherent part of German character. Israeli historian Yehuda Bauer claims that Daniel Goldhagen stumbles badly, that his thesis does not work. He charges that the anti-German bias of his book, almost a racist bias, leads nowhere. The American historian Fritz Stern denounced the book as unscholarly, full of racist German phobia. Raoul Hilberg summarizes the debates by the end of 1990. It was clear in sharp distinction from lay readers that much of the academic world had wiped Daniel Goldhagen off the map. So many so much of the academic world. So many things that are a popular publishing phenomenon, right, are completely derided by people who specialize in the topic. So in 2002, Daniel Goldhagen published A Moral Reckoning, the role of the Catholic Church in the Holocaust and its unfulfilled duty of repair. So scholars criticized the book, calling it a misuse of the Holocaust to advance an anti-Catholic agenda and poor scholarship. So David Reith, another historian, writes about Daniel Goldhagen's book from 2009, Worse Than War, German Aside, Immolate, 
eliminationism and the ongoing assault on humanity. So David Reeve, historian, characterizes Daniel Goldhagen as a pro-Israel polemicist and amateur historian. So Reeve questions Daniel Goldhagen's equating the culture of death of Nazism with that of political Islam. He questions Goldhagen's conclusion that to prevent el eliminationism, the United States should be re the United Nations should be remade into an interventionist entity, focusing on a devoted international push for democratizing more countries. Uh, the book is undermined by a casual approach to basic research and by the author's tendency to overreach and to overstate his case. So when you start overstating your case, people will start to distrust you. British historian David Elstein accuses Daniel Goldhagen of manipulating his sources to make a false accusation of genocide against the British during the Mau Mau uprising in the 1950s in Kenya. He says uh, Daniel Goldhagen is way open to the charge that he is the kind of scholar who is either unaware of the facts or prefers to exclude those which do not fit his thesis. So those are some examples why I've never had uh, much of an interest in reading Daniel Goldhagen's work. Right, this is from Richard Spencer's podcast, Negative Theology, which was conducted December 15. Yeah, and I, I do think that um, any type of society that we ultimately want to build after the uh, this crazy episode is finished that we're leaving, uh, I, I do think should be a sensual society. Should be about the visible and the senses and being proud of beauty, and that includes uh, that includes scantily clad women, boys. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I, gotta, I say that jokingly, but I'm actually dead serious. Yeah, yeah. We are not against the body at all. No. We do not. We do not hate our body. We do not like as Nietzsche said. The Jews invented sin in a very particular way, which is that your body. You hate your body so much that you think you're, you know, born in this problem. That the body is an issue. We we don't think like that. It was the story of Nephilim. Have you guys heard of that? Ah. Uh. Okay, so who's the we that he's talking about? And you don't have to hate the body to want some restrictions on the display of it. I, I mean, this idea that if you want you know, some degree of modesty, if you want to, say, push the sexual genie into the marital bottle, that this is because you just hate the body is is absurd, right? You may love steak, but you may, may not want to eat it every single day. Right? There may be all sorts of things that you love, such as your spouse, but you may not want other men having sex with her. It, it, it's just such an amateurish critique of Jewish and Christian morality. Okay, remind me. I, 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 I don't know it. I actually don't yeah. know it. Like that's just what I have written down. Hmm. By so, Nephilim, do you mean the giant hybrids, the giant angel hybrids that came down to Earth? that were destroyed by the flood, um, which they could argue that that is a uh, symbolism for Aryans in the Old Testament. I have no idea. I, I, I mentioned a Texas, Texas guy. That's a guy I used to work with. Okay. The Nephilim are not about Aryans in, in the Old Testament. It's a story about, about giants who, who've come to Earth. <laughs> Within reason. Yeah. If you're fat, it's a nod. <laughs> right you'll have a big flowing you know gown or blouse yeah 
yeah, yeah. A moment like what like what moment becomes a police in that infamous Simpsons episode. Yes, the nail drip. <laughs> I don't even know what that was. What is that? Okay, let me fast. You know, do with all these loose hooks. I mean, that was the it, so it was addressed, but only in that context. And you know, like within four years, we were at war, and people were overtly talking about going all like expanding this all over the world, ending evil and things like this. So things can kind of ramp up. And okay, you're talking about the 1990s, how the, there was little sense of the need for war anymore. It was thought in the 1990s that we were past history, right? We had graduated to a time where there's only one method of government that is liberal democracy. Just their little things. I mean, you know, like if someone had said someone's going to ban contraceptions in the 1990s or even five years ago, just be like, all right, that's just, you know, you can buy condoms at Walgreens. I mean, what are you talking about? so mainstream but it's in the air and even things that i'm much much more sympathetic towards like um banning porn there's there's just there's like little it's it's kind of out there and i i can i I, i'm I'm really i'm trying not to sound like a shrill liberal here but like i can imagine them doing these things and Uh, the the them here he's referring to republicans they definitely want to now the wind's kind of in their sails to a large degree and i think this might be another kind of like irony of the post-trump era which is one of the ironies that i've stressed is that all these mexicans are voting republican the the other irony is that this you know thrice divorced uh womanizer has opened the floodgates of um christian fundamentals (laughs) many ironies but it's it's out there on the elite level go ahead I mean, I was going to say, like, this all ties in not only what we were saying earlier with the Musk and um, sort of maybe part of at least like some elite uh, power brokers that want to revive 2016, but also to something. This is a point I made about, I think, two or three months ago on one of these chats. But I um, certainly see an effort um, to kind of reignite the right wing white male like warrior spirit, probably just to kind of get um, America more on a war footing. To, to handle yeah. like you know like Cold War 2.0, and you can see that yeah. in different media. And I mean, I, I would actually love yeah. if Mark's still on Mark's take if he's picked up on this. But um, and I mentioned this a few months ago, but like there's all these you have all these like really badass stuff. Jack Reacher, yeah, Jack Reacher's. And by the way, if you haven't watched that Jack Reacher show, I'd say guys watch it. It's just let me rewind here. But um, and I mentioned this a few months ago, but like there's all these you have all these like really badass like yeah, Jack Reacher. badass yeah, yeah we've talked about Jack Reacher's I mean and by the way if you haven't watched that Jack Reacher show I say guys watch it it's just, it, it's, it's not going to be rich in REM theory and it's um, not going to boggle your mind intellectually but it's just basically a big Jack blonde white dude that goes around beating non-whites um, <laughs> the whole show yeah I, I was yeah, pretty yeah, amazed uh, at the uh, at, at that uh, series which I watched yes yeah like that kind of a series would not have flown during yeah, the Obama yeah. years or like even the Trump years and now that's on, you know, Amazon. You have Top Gun. You have- By contrast, you remember during the Obama years, you had all these depressing movies about the end of the world, about the apocalypse, movies like The Road. And now in the post-Trump years, we have this explosion of the warrior spirit in popular culture. Let me rewind a little bit here. At the... Uh- at that uh, series, which I watched, yes. Yeah, like that kind of a series would not have flown during yeah, the Obama yeah. years or like even the Trump years. And now that's on, you know, Amazon. You have Top Gun. You had the uh, the Norseman movie. And um, there have been a couple of other examples as well. And if you think back to like during the Bush years, especially like Bush's first term, there were like a lot of really good, badass, 
movies that showed white men in valiant roles, like the Lord of the Rings trilogy. You had Gladiator with Russell Crowe. You had the Troy movie with um, Brad Pitt. You had 300. Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, I mean, like, look, we in this chat know better than anyone the power of, you know, uh, myth and, you know, um, yeah, this, this, this kind of symbolism that, 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 we, that we see in media. And I'm seeing a total shift this year in particular back in that direction now. And then, you know, you add to that what we're seeing with Musk and and yeah, I mean, um, yeah, uh, like, like I, I think there's something there. Yeah. So how do you account for this return of the, the warrior spirit? I, I never thought of these points, but but now that uh, I'm hearing them, I think, I think there's something to it. We have a return of the warrior spirit. There's something that the new Top Gun movie, the Jack Re- Reacher show, there is a definite change in popular culture yeah. right now. Um, it, it, Top Gun was launched in like 2018 and 2019, and then it was set to be released in 2020, and it got delayed just massively, it's a year and a half. So yeah, because of COVID. It, yeah. yeah, because of COVID. So it definitely was not post uh, Ukraine. So that's important. But it, it, it's, it's weird that it just coincided with that and clearly was moralizing and kind of justified in neo-Cold War. There's no doubt. And I agree. I agree with the Jack Reacher thing. That's a remarkable. I, I actually watched that miniseries um, a few months ago. Yeah, pretty remarkable stuff. Yeah, explicit racialism, Almost, like, especially where... Um... There's the finance guy who uh, I, I promise I do not resemble in real life at all, um, but he's about to get basically asked why the black dude's in prison, <laughs> like clearly getting at a, at a white racial antagonism, whatever you want to call it. And yeah. it, it is almost symbolic how he comes down from the top bunk. Like, I'm not going to over It's not quite he descends from heaven, but it's kind of like guardian angel just drops in and says all right fuckers and then basically if anybody did that to another human being in real life they'd be dead but i think his, his black friends sort of take him out after you know about to rape the white dude and he's sort of bloodied up but he'd be dead in real life but i was watching it with a, a girl i was telling at the time I, I actually couldn't believe what i was seeing like it is so explicitly along racial lines that and yeah there's another point where i think he is with his bare hands compound fracturing um, illegal immigrant legs who are acting as operatives for the bad people to fit in the boot of his jeep. Yes. Which, well, yeah, like, for, let me just uh, add real quick. Sorry, that go scene, ahead. Yeah. That scene's even more, it's even more poignant than, than because like, yeah, like he comes out of the top bunk, the, like this skinny, like a white guy um, who I guess I didn't pick up on that, but he's in the finance industry in the show. You say, Kirk? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so like um, Reacher rescues him. He's being bullied by these black inmates about to be raped basically. But, um, what they do, what those blacks do, I remember, is they take the small finance white dude's glasses and they break them. And Reacher, he beats, he, like, like he kicks ass on the black guys and he takes their glasses. But, like, what like what would have been a very Christian moralizing thing would be for Reacher to give the glasses that he steals from the black guy to the skinny white guy, but he keeps the glasses. And the next scene, you see him walking out with this badass pair of sunglasses and, and like, the skinny white dude is, like, still kind of squinting and, like, needs his glasses. So, I mean, I thought that was a very Achilles kind of, like, you know, like I'm like like I'm I'm a very competent, wild, yes, I'm effective, but like also kind of selfish kind of mm-hmm. form of heroism. Yeah, you know, like in contrast to I'm I'm this meek Christ figure and you take my whole life and take everything from me. And then I stole him off him. Oh yeah, no, I'm shooting, sorry. Being an idiot. Yeah, I I do think there'll be an attempt to remoralize things and I, I think there's a genuine sense in Hollywood of, of taking things a little too far. And alienating the audience and just kind of, yeah. Um, 
a lot of. But do you think it ties in? Sorry, but like, but to tie into your main point, Richard, about like the contraception and like just, I mean, like, is there a larger effort just to re-energize the right? Because I mean, the 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 left has such premacy right now, culturally (laughs) and and in this country. And I mean, like, like there's not. I mean, what does the right have going? I mean, with with, like Trumpism dying out, I mean, you know, Desantisism is not is not going to do it. I don't think they want yayism. I think that's too hot for them, like you say. So, yeah. um, like, maybe they'll just keep giving giving them little wins to try to, you know, get them off their ass again. Yeah. yeah I, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. I've said what I said. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. Well, I, I mean, I think that, or what I perceive or most palpably is a kind of um, a cultural exhaustion or malaise, right? So I don't, I don't feel like... Um, yeah, so we've got the return of the warrior spirit, but what the heck does it mean? Because we could, there, you know, political things uh, can develop simultaneously, of course, and there can be political movements um, that sort of sweep us into power uh, because we're we're at the right place at the right time, and and that's good. And and, and certainly, um, what I'm discussing is not I'm not against you know uh, you know those sort of political movements. Of course, obviously, I'm not. I, I think that many uh, sort of approaches and avenues should be pursued simultaneously, um, but. Really, uh, with Aryan theory and uh, t- looking at it as a religio-cultural problem, it's you know what what happens if we do suddenly get swept into power by some political movement? Um, what do we do? You know, what is our decision? How how do we create the culture from there? Because we will be in that position to create the culture. Now, of course, Aryan theory allows you to uh, create a culture in, when you're not in power. It allows you to do that as well because you can do it. You can do it esoterically, and you can do it um, uh, in in some ways in a much less antagonistic way than you can move politically. Um, but nevertheless, I think you take my point. It's, it's you know, if, if we don't, if we're not thinking about these deeper problems, once we come into power, we, we, there's no way that we could hold on to power because we wouldn't, we wouldn't have a kind of, uh, we, we wouldn't have a, a way of thinking or a worldview or a culture or a religion that we could present um, that would keep us in power. Right. You, you understand? Well, like, let let right. me add this as, as an illustration of this. You know, I, I was trying to get at, you know, what does Musk want? And I, I feel like I, I have a vague notion, if any. And there's also no doubt that Musk kind of resonates with something that we might call Aryan. I mean, he's flying into space. He wants to you know, develop free speech. He wants to, you know, explore the inner workings of the brain. You know, there's something Aryan or Faustian or whatever about him. Um, but don't you also kind of sense that he's going to ultimately lose, you know, or his anything he achieves will be pretty short lived. I mean, I'm not trying to be Debbie down. Wait, just a second here. That we all ultimately lose, it all depends upon your framework, your standard for winning or losing. But all of us ultimately lose in many different things. We all ultimately die. Everything that we work to build up will eventually be torn down. So I don't think that uh, what Elon Musk is struggling with and his, his being you know, an ultimate loser is any different from the human condition. Right, even even people you think of as winners, there are whole vast areas of their life where they're going to be losing. Right? No one is just objectively a winner, and that's it. Even Michael Jordan, who, who seems you know about as objective an example of winning as anyone, you can find all sorts of areas of his life where where he lost, such as like he gambled away well over a million dollars. So this notion that Elon Musk is just fated to be a loser. Well, in many areas of his life, he's going to win. In other areas of his life, he's going to lose. But ultimately, everything that we try to build up is going to be torn down. Here, here. But, you know, is banning a couple of journalists on Twitter, like, is, is any of this going to really result in much of anything? You know, getting DeSantis elected or whatever. I mean, I, I, it's just, it, it all does seem to strike me as, like, deeply short term. 
as opposed to what Apollo wisdom, REM theory by Mark Brahman, as opposed to everything that Richard Spencer's created. And that's because there is no real philosophy behind it. Oh, so if you got a real philosophy behind it, then then you're going to win. You just need to have real philosophy. No, I, I agree. I mean, we, I think that we uh, he's he's a potential that we don't um, we don't know. Uh, like we don't know if he's at the end of his arc or if he's at the beginning of an arc. I mean, right. you know, again, I, I think we're we're uh, having lived through. But we don't know if Elon Musk is at the end of his arc or the beginning of his arc. He's about the world's richest man. He's done incredible things with with Tesla, with with SpaceX. He's made Twitter far better. Uh, he already already has an incredible arc that surpasses that of ninety nine point nine 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 percent of humanity. Trump years, we're not. Um... I don't think that we're cynics. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think, but I think that we're, um, but we're not, you know, I I think that you said it once, the cavalry is not coming. So we're not, we're not depending on, you know, we're not depending on any particular development or we're not hoping on any particular development or or for uh, some very salient or powerful person like uh, Mark to suddenly become red pilled. Right. I mean, it it could be very, it could actually be the case that he is like going down the pipeline, so to speak, but it Mm -hmm. also could be the case that he's kind of reached a sort of like uh, political terminus. And this is who the guy is. He's just kind of a MAGA. And that might even be more. Yeah, He's kind of gotten red pilled in a, in maybe to a large degree in bad ways. Yeah. Um, but even, you know, so, in, so I think that so Richard's saying Elon Musk has been red pilled in bad ways. It's bad that he is increasing free speech on Twitter. It's bad that he's reinstating thousands of accounts that were, were banned. This is, this is all bad. This is all bad red pilling. You have to, you have to assume that, um, conditions will more or less remain the same or even worsen. Um, uh, and that you won't get a, a hand from above necessarily, but, um, but you know, with him, who knows? I mean, uh, he could uh, if he ends up making um, Twitter uh, a free speech platform, while not also destroying it, right? Um, well, like if he handles Twitter well and makes it a a good like sort of um, uh, a good media platform, then that's pretty massive. I mean, he's done. You know, I mean, we can't really. Yes, if he makes it, the, if he makes Twitter a free speech platform, that is a massive achievement. That's a huge achievement. Right. That dwarfs anything that Richard's achieved, or I've achieved, or anyone in the alt right has achieved. Ask more from him than that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's still that's still up in the air. I mean, we'll see if he can do that. But um, if he can do that, then I, you know, I think that we would be very happy with him. And I don't think you know what I mean. And he would have done much more than anyone else, right? <laughs> Honestly, you know. That's right. I think that where we find ourselves here and now, he's a means to an end. To whatever extent that we can use what he makes as changes to Twitter, but. I was just going to add to your point there, Mark, because often people, like maybe just even more generally speaking, red-pilling the normies, quote-unquote, that is, I see that as very fraught with danger because it leads a lot of people to nihilism and despair because they sort of, they can't... It depends on where people are at the time, all right? People who are predisposed to losing, people who want to self-destruct, people who want to be antisocial are going to find ways of using the whole red-pilling process to self-destruct. Other people who are in a healthy place, who have friends, who have family, who have a career, who have education, they're not going to self-destruct. Quite internalize... They can, they can maybe even entertain the demographic changes that are sweeping previously Anglosphere countries, uh, the trans stuff and the, its perpetuation in culture and politics, whatever else. Like they, they can sort of sense it, but they can't let go of these sort of liberal modernity slash Christian moral prize. And so they feel 
um, they feel in a way like the devil has society. Almost. Like I'm not simplifying it by much. Even amongst people who would probably on the surface level call themselves secular, they they sort of see the world, oh, um, instead of this, you know, it's like a... Yeah, people see the world as the liberal left controls almost all of our major institutions, dominates the means of cultural production, and they see normal human experiences of right and wrong, normal ways of organizing family being overturned. They see the trans revolution, they see gay marriage, and many people are revolted, which is strikes me as a healthy reaction. A free debate and a free marketplace of ideas. Actually, um, the people that are politically opposite me own and control all of the major cultural and social institutions, and that's not fair, blah, blah, blah. Whereas they can't really internalize that no life is existential by default their quest for power has led them to there and you have been fighting by queensbury rules for the better part of the century yeah no i look i mean yeah i mean look i think um i think i think the whole atmosphere has changed on some level um now how rapidly or how slowly things develop from here is uh unclear and exactly how they develop is also unclear um I mean, I do think that the left and when I when I, I'm talking about also kind of the cultural left and sort of, you know, these kind of phonic forces of darkness, I'm talking on a more kind of metaphysical or spiritual level, these kind of phonic forces of darkness um, have have, uh, you know, I think that they're kind of in a in a sort of static position right now. You know, what I mean, and I think that they I mean, because it's unclear how much further they can go and, and they, they see that they're getting a reaction. Now, the reaction is now a kind of mindless uh, sort of plebeian reaction uh, that they're facing right now. So they're not facing anything really sophisticated right now. Um but we should work to change that so that they are facing something that is more sophisticated. You know what I mean? And, uh, and it, there are many like parallels basically in the ancient world to what we're seeing now. And I, and I think that you can only, you can only uh, take these, these comparisons so far, of course, um, every age is, is its own age as it were. But um, there was this, so one of the uh, mother goddess cults, um, the cult of uh, Sybil, Sybil, I think it's how you pronounce it. The cult of Sybil. Um, they did have these uh, priests that uh, were self-castrating priests. So they were effectively uh, mm-hmm. transsexuals. They were called the galley. Yeah. But, you know, and this is one of the cults. So throughout the whole, uh, you know, uh, Hellenic world, uh, you know, there there was uh, basically a kind of earlier group. And and I have my own theories about um, exactly what this group represented. And and it's in the book. And I think I think my uh, thesis is essentially correct. But, um, you know, before the uh, Hellenes appeared, uh, there was a pre-Hellenic group. and they uh, were worshiping these uh, earth mother goddesses, but one of them is this goddess uh, um, Sybil, right? So, in other words, we're seeing kind of the same thing happening. Like it, it, we're seeing the cult of Sybil again in the modern world uh, with uh, this transsexual movement. Um, and of course, what would happen? The most ancient oracle in Greece, it's uh, Dodona. Dodona is the name of the oracle. Um, it was originally um, devoted to this mother goddess um, who could have been Rhea could have been civil, but they appear to all have been of the same cult, you know, throughout that whole Mediterranean world. Um, and they, they basically rededicated her Oracle or they overthrew that Oracle um, and uh, put Jupiter, you know, or Zeus on the, and that became the, that became the seat of the, uh, uh, the, the Hellas or the Hellenes. Right. Um, which are, and I, you know, there's truth to this as well, but it's, the story is a little more complex, but uh, the Hellenes were uh, these kind of fair, Nordic Northern Congress, or that, that's so I've had a hard time trying to understand where Mark Brahman is coming from, but this is the essence of his perspective that these various Greek courts were proto Jews, 
I, I don't think there's any evidence for this. To me, this is entirely constructed out of you know, Mark Brahman's imagination. Uh, they're thought to have, they're thought to have comprised of four branches, the Hellenes. And so, yeah, if you're wondering why I'm sweating so much, there's no air conditioning here. And I have to keep the windows shut. Maybe I'll open the windows, but uh, we'll see what happens when I open windows for the sound quality. But there are all these uh, cicadas outside. So let's see what uh, that does to the sound quality. Maybe I'll shut the window again. So I sweat, sweat, sweat. Um, uh the Dorians are one of those branches uh, who will become the Spartans, for example. Um, and, but in, in other words, I think that there is a kind of, um, I think that in the ancient world, they basically reached a similar kind of darkness. Right? <laughs> so it's like sort of terrible as the world seems to us now. This has happened before. Like humanity has reached this nadir before is, is what I'm saying. And that should be sort of encouraging to us. We should, we should say, well, that's, like, they got out of the hole. Effectively, right. And I think that, you know, and I think that Greece maybe in particular is especially unique in this regard. In other words, it may have sunk the lowest and may have come back the strongest on some level. And that's also especially true of Rome as well, you know. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of um, a lot of things encouraging in the ancient world when we look back and we're able to make those sort of comparisons. And uh, the transsexual thing is, I mean, it's literally kind of like one to one comparison. You know what I mean? And, and of course, as well, I mean, we're aware and, and I think that they're correct. I, ultimately, I think that they're correct. The, uh, the sort of QAnon crowd that we make fun of because they are also insane and crazy, but they're insane, irrational, but they're also like. They're more in tuned in some way because they, they're more instinctive. Right. So they, they can't. So in, in other words, there are these all these proto-Jewish cults in ancient Greece, which doesn't make any sense to me. That's, however, that's uh, Mark Brahman's uh, worldview. All right, interesting tweet here from a day ago. Tonight, Argentina didn't just win against France. Nationalism triumphed against globalism, belief in God against secularism. Every Argentinian player possessed by a desire to bring joy to their people, to make history for their nation, to bring glory to a nation. Look at this image of Montiel. Moments after he scored the winning penalty for Argentina, you can feel the joy, the gratitude, the emotion, knowing that an entire country and his family are proud of him for fighting with pride to the very last minute for bringing them joy. Now compare that with this image of 19-year-old Mbappe after scoring the 2018 final against Croatia moments after the final whistle. No joy, no emotion, no pride, no love for anyone but himself. Yes, you see that in Mbappe's celebrations in this latest World Cup. When your country actively works to replace you, your culture, and your religion with people who can never feel the same attachment to the nation, it makes me happy to see France lose. So, yeah, there was a quality of nationalism and community with the Argentinian team that I did not see with the French team. Okay, we've got an interesting blog post here by Colin Liddell. He says, I think Nick Fuentes is totally right about the Holocaust, right? In the sense that it shouldn't be used to phrase issues in the modern day. It should not be a filter for what can and cannot be said or even thought. So, yeah, I, I agree with that. We can't use the Holocaust or any past historical genocide to determine what we can talk about today or is what is the proper framework for a approaching moral issues today so this is honestly 
We don't care about your grandmother that died in the Holocaust. I'm sorry. That's always what they come with. It's always the guilt trip. It's the emotional propaganda. I know that sounds callous. I know that sounds insensitive. But it's no different than any of this other racial grievance politics over slavery or over colonization or genocide. I see no difference between AOC calling us colonizers and these Jewish groups calling us Holocaust deniers. It's the same weaponization of racial grievance to, to browbeat us into submission. Right, and uh, Colin Liddell thinks that uh, Nick's basically right. So... You don't need history to know that acts of cruelty were recorded in, in the Holocaust during World War II. The real point is that issues like immigration, eugenics, free speech, the right of the state of Israel to exist where it exists, as opposed to the fact of the state of Israel should all stand and fall on their own merits. I agree with this analysis. They should not be propped up on some holier-than-holy historical narrative that you are not allowed to deny, where your non-compliance draws down on you a barrage of racism or anti-Semite from the big guns of the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Anti-Defamation League. So it's freedom from the Holocaust called the Holocaust as religion that Nick Fuentes is seeking freedom from, right? Because the Holocaust frequently is misused to support partisan political aims. So... Each community should just stick to commemorating its own dead rather than trying to foist them on the rest of the world as if corpses were some kind of easily transferable international moral currency. That's Colin Liddell's point, and I think he's right. Now, here's uh, Nick Fuentes in Twitter Spaces. You know, you hate Hitler. It's not funny. It's like, it's not even true. Okay, Hitler was kind of epic in a lot of ways. But we also love Adolf Hitler. Okay. And uh, non-negotiable. Not not just because we like the Hugo Boss uniform. Okay. We really love him. We really love him. And we love all the Nazis, too. Uh, that's insane. Hitler was epic. We all love you know, Adolf Hitler and all the Nazis, right? Speaking to nations that went to war against Germany during World War II, this is absolutely you know, self-destructive, you know, anti-social movement. Once you start using this kind of rhetoric, Kanye West has been dropped out. Apparently, he was you know, under the negative influence of drugs and alcohol when, when he went on this jihad. And somehow... It does seem that every incarnation of the white nationalist movement eventually reaches its final position, Sieg Heiling, with the bros. This is uh, Brad Griffin writing on Neocrat, Colin Liddell's website. So, you know, why the heck do these movements you know, always end up you know, admiring the Nazis and talking about how much you know, they, they love Hitler? It always seems to end up here, talking about how epic Hitler was. I uh, wonder what uh, William Pierce would think of uh, Nick Fuentes and Yadov. So, the sole novelty of America First is that it is gender-fluid and multiracial. I'm pretty sure this is the first time that any incarnation of the movement has ever tried to rally around a bipolar black rapper. 
previous generations of neo-Nazis had higher standards, they would not have approved of this. Yeah, I don't think George Lincoln Rockwell would have uh, signed on to yayism. Okay, Stephen, Stephen J. James, not impressed with the latest edition of Millennial. Where's all the big ideas gone? Where's all the excitement gone? Super exciting clip show, said he'd completely forgotten about it. Now look, I'm not going to do myself any favours, am I? But I think I've decided this is the place that you go to retire. This is the place that you go to die. This is the place where you go, you put a bib on, and pour food all down your chest, and you moan and groan, and you say, But the world! isn't like it used to be, is it? Things are just not like how they used to be. Everything, the thing that I'm worried about, is everything's been taken away. Things are just not like they were when I used to be around. When I grew up, everything's changed. People aren't the same anymore. That kind of thing. <laughs> Nobody listens. It's like a care home, isn't it, where everybody sat well, it's not everybody. We don't even have any group combos going on. We need to mix this thing up. We need to get it more exciting. We need fresh ideas instead of one-on-one -on -one interviews in the care home office or something, which is what these seem like. It seems dated. It seems old. I'm not doing myself any favours. I'm aware of that. If Woe's here, this is like, he'll have a nervous breakdown about being criticised for all the one-year, thousand, millennial, millennia of effort he's put into it. Again, he's already given himself a heart attack, put on 50 stone just to deliver this content to us this year. And there's some no-good idiot Dumacunt, tearing it down, offering nothing better, but just taking a swipe. He'll ban me on every social media possible, but I, I'm just, just saying well, how, it, how it feels. It feels dated, it feels tired. We've got one by one. Marge from Room 30 coming on to say, well, when I was a kid, I had, I had all my own teeth. And then we've got Bill from Room 64 coming in to say, the kids these days don't dress like I dressed when I was a young one. And then we've got Ted from room 80, he comes in and he says, well, nobody listens to me anymore. Nobody takes my idea seriously. <laughs> and uh, I've said it before, but Claycourt really did nail it a few years ago, ladies and gentlemen, when she said, it's just, a, it's just 60 episodes of washed up old folk moaning and groaning and whinging that nobody takes them seriously. So I want to ask, where's the bold ideas? Where's all the fresh ideas? And I had this epiphany when I was listening to Trump. He gave his speech, didn't he? The other day, yesterday. Let's forget that he brought out some kind of superhero NFT trading card. That's fine by me. I'm not going to knock him for that. I don't know why everybody thinks that that's such a bad thing. He's fundraising. He's fundraising for 2024, isn't he? And he's trying to get down with the kids. He's learned about these NFTs. Somebody, probably Stephen Miller or some other past-thinking Jew, told him, well, flog something digital, then uh, we don't have to actually make it. Like, we were selling hats last time for $25 a time, and they cost us, like, $10 to make, and we were only making 15 on those, Trump. And then the store took five of that, said, this time, just sell something digital, the kids will love it. So it's not such a bad idea. The superhero cards, he's, he's like Superman or something. But he also came out with a fresh, bold plan, which is about censorship, isn't it? And stuff like that. Trump announcement. Let's find a little bit of it. Then I'll disappear. Uh, where is it? Come on, dude.
to praise Hitler, um, however you want to put it, because he did, you know, well, because he didn't he, say he go around the here, losers. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, Kanye's probably not going to win the presidency, and Kanye is not going to out Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, you know? So get over that stuff. Things that are just purely pragmatic don't ultimately change the world. Things that are radical and visionary, maybe bombastic and a little bit crazy, those are the kinds of things that change the world. I mean, you could say, Martin Luther, oh, oh my God, you The, the door of the chapel with all this, the, you know, your demands. I mean, what are you doing, man? Just come on. You, you should work within the system and like slowly reform it. No, Ikan Nick Anders, he, he had to do it. He had to be that bold and radical. Those are the types of people who change history. The types of people who are, who are worried about little pragmatism or tactics or we can't offend people. Those are the people who follow along. Those are the people who go with the flow and so on. He's, he's the type of person in his own crazy way. And I can't believe, um, you know, I've known about Kanye for 20 years. I, I can't believe that I'm now praising him. But in his own crazy way, he has changed the world. And or at least tried to, or at least tried to bring us to a new place. Okay, so Kanye West has, uh, you know, alcohol and and, and drug fueled, you know, bender, and, and Richard thinks that he's changing the world. This is hilarious. It's like philosophically and religiously, and whether I agree exactly with what he's doing or whether I would do something different, there's no question I would do things differently. But I just admire the balls. I admire the boldness. I admire the lack of fear. I admire the manliness of him. I mean, it's just. Okay, this is a drug and alcohol-fueled bender by Kanye West, which he's apparently backed off from. Kanye disappeared the last 10 days. But Richard, who may well have had his own share of drug and alcohol-fueled benders, uh, thinks that Kanye was on something powerful. You know, it is what it is. But all these people, like, I was worried, to be honest, and I know you have some kind of relationship with Milo, or maybe you don't. I was worried when Milo got on board with that thing, and this is still a danger, that it might be this just massive grift to take away Kanye's last million, <laughs> and uh, and Milo would run off with it or something. Uh, yeah, I have some tendencies towards bipolar. I've never received a bipolar diagnosis, so if there are, say, like, eight characteristics of bipolar, I have something like two of them. At least I did at a certain time in my life. But things like bipolar or... Yeah. narcissistic personality disorder, etc. These things are also situation dependent. Right? If you suffer substantial loss in your life, you're going to be sad and you're going to exhibit many of the symptoms of depression. Right? We've increasingly medicalized normal human sadness and suffering and given it a medical diagnosis. Uh, you know, he's a snake in my opinion. He's certainly not needed in that campaign. Uh, but it, that, that was my general opinion when this thing got started. But I, I do think that Kanye's in control. I mean, Kanye's at the helm, or Ye, excuse me, Ye's at the helm. He's running the ship. I don't, this might burn out. This might be destroyed from within. All of those things are. Yeah, I think it's uh, already burned out. <laughs> it burned brightly for a couple of weeks, and now it's apparently already burned out. Or very possible. But at least it's something. At least it's a genuine attempt to be bold and change the world in the way that Trump. Yeah, so there's Richard's analysis, Kanye's being bold, trying to change the world. Blake's analysis, Kanye, you know, bipolar, alcoholic, uh, drug user, you know, with many mental health problems, goes on a drug and alcohol fuel bender and destroys his life. Trump was. Trump captured that dark energy in 2016. And, you know, understandably, it's gone. The man has just suffered too many slings and arrows. And he's tired, and he's old. And he can't recapture it if his announcement speech is any evidence of that fact. He's just he's just done. And he's trying to out DeSantis, Ron DeSantis. He's trying to be like, oh, remember the stock market in 2019? Woohoo, that was great. <laughs> Let's go back to that. And it's like, 
fuck off. No one cares about that. No one cares about that shit. The, the, the craziness of Trump was that Dionysian... Uh, people do care about the stock market. <laughs> when uh, people are making money on the stock market, they spend more money. They you know, improve the economy. Tens of thousands of people have more jobs, have more income. Uh, people are allowed to retire. People are allowed to you know, set aside more time and resources for doing things they love, as opposed to when the stock market, stock market crashes, you know, millions of lives are adversely affected. I mean, how on earth could you say that the stock market does not matter? And tens of millions of lives are dramatically affected by the direction of the stock market. Chaos energy that he was able to tap into, and he like retweeted a Mussolini quote, and everyone was like, "Oh my god!" You know, it, it was that's the kind of thing you need to do. That, that's what you need to do to win. In fact, because Republicans ain't winning jack shit as Republicans. I hate to break it to you, this midterm—they they had everything. The midterm was theirs to lose, and they did maybe okay, but it was clearly a disappointment. They on the national campaigns when everyone's focused on it, and the Democrats are truly motivated, they lose. They lose the popular vote over and over and over again. The only way for them to win is for Clarice Starling to go visit Hannibal Lecter. You, you have to, like, go bad to, like, defeat the bads or whatever. You, you have to, like, tap into Hannibal in order to catch up. Okay, so there was some uh, commentary that my audio is bad. So keep me updated. Let's see if uh, things are any improved. Interesting Los Angeles Times article. As Tom Girardi, he's a prominent attorney in California, as Tom Girardi scathed, the California State Bar went after black attorneys. Now, the California State Bar is dominated by the left. Uh, do you really think the California State Bar is just singling out black attorneys for no reason? This reminds me of that New York Times article I spoke about two weeks ago where in New York State, uh, black parents were eight times more likely to kill their kids than non-black parents, that uh, black parents were eight times more likely to receive reports of abuse as compared to non-black non parents. And the, the tortured arguments of these articles is that you know, the state bar is racist, that uh, social workers are overwhelmingly on the race, on the left are a bunch of racists. Maybe there are other explanations. Right? Maybe there's something wrong in some sections of black life, as indeed there are things wrong in some sections of Jewish life, in Argentinian life, in Japanese life. Right? So the state bar tends to go after lawyers who can't fight back, right? Lawyers who don't have resources. So it's just a lot easier, right, to pick on people without a strong defense. So between 1990 and 2018, black male lawyers were four times as likely to be disbarred or to resign with charges pending. Also, black doctors are far more likely to be you know, accused of and sued for malpractice. So black lawyers interviewed by the Los Angeles Times described practicing law in fear that small accounting errors could tarnish their license. Well, maybe you need to be very careful about your accounting when, when you're a lawyer. But maybe the problem isn't the California State Bar, right, which you know, leans over way to the left uh, to be anti-racist. But maybe there's a problem in some sections of the black attorney community. So, this is interesting. Los Angeles Times identifies two, two attorneys who went uncharged by the California State Bar for years despite numerous accusations of wrongdoing. Mark Gregos, criminal defense specialist, has been the subject of 56 complaints since 1986. He's also recently bought Los Angeles Magazine.
And there's another attorney here, Luke Azulis, the subject of 87 complaints over 20 years. But these two attorneys were able to afford you know, vigorous legal representation. You tend to get better results in life when you have power on your side. When you are powerless, the strong will do with you what they wish. And you, being powerless, will have to endure what you must. That's how the world works. So black attorneys are significantly less likely to be able to afford a defense attorney. And if you can't afford a defense attorney, you won't get the same quality of representation as those who can afford one. So people who have resources tend to do better in life than those who don't. So the study finds that half of black male attorneys are subjects of at least one complaint. 44% for Latino male attorneys, 17% for Asian females. So it would not surprise me if Asian female attorneys were more careful than, say, other groups of attorneys. Right? They receive half the rate of complaints of white male attorneys. 12% of black male lawyers have received 10 or more complaints. I suspect that if you receive 10 or more complaints to the California State Bar, that uh, it's probably something wrong with how you're operating. And I don't think the problem is the California State Bar. Black lawyers are more likely to work alone, so the practitioners are disproportionately targeted. Yeah, because they have fewer resources. They're easier to go after. So one attorney wrote in a pending appeal, the real problem here, the California State Bar is a an agency composed of 100 Karens. Well, when you don't dot the, T, the I's and cross the T's, right, you're going to have people go after you, particularly in a visible position, such as being a member of the California State Bar. So some striking statistics here. So black male lawyers four times as likely to be disbarred as other attorneys, three times more likely to be placed on probation than their white counterparts. Maybe there's something wrong, right, with how these attorneys are practicing. Maybe the answer isn't, uh, it's just all white racism. Okay, here's an interesting essay on purity politics and the I problem the of Jewish, Jewish or Moorish blood, right? And overseeing religious orthodoxy, which was assessed based on purity of blood. So the idea of blood purity wasn't limited, though, to the Inquisition. Religious difference, skin color, geographic origin, all coalesced in Orientalist and colonial definitions of race. The processes of racialization were intimately linked to ideas about the relative purity or impurity of particular groups, particular religions who were in fact distinct races, Hindus, Jews, Moors, Christians. Atia Hussein notes that race is a political system operating on multiple levels that emerge from the context of European expansion in the modern era through violence, including conquest, slavery, and colonization. Religion, specifically Christianity, was used to provide ideological support for this violence through the citing of religious texts and attempts to convert colonized populations. Additionally, the black, white, or white, non-white logic that racism rests on is based on the binary logic of Christian heathen, in which religion is also a way to identify and categorize bodies. She says that due to this context, race signifies superiority and inferiority with reference to 
So my uh, picture is going to be frozen here because I plugged and unplugged my mic to get better audio quality. But what she's really protesting here is the nature of reality, right? Nature is frequently binary. We distinguish between our group and other groups, our family and other families, our people and other people, our profession and other professions. The phenotype, geography, culture, and religion, which are all written onto the body as a site of difference. And so race has always been perpetually entangled with the category of religion and is always marked, as she said, with religious difference and must be understood in the context of systems of power, which were used as a way to organize bodies and identify them who could be colonized and who couldn't be. So she says that... So she's complaining that people operate as extended families, right? That uh, races are simply an extended family, that uh, people traditionally prefer their own family and their own extended family to other families, This is the nature of a very typical left-wing complaint. That in order for scholarship to take seriously that religion is always implicit in discussions of race is absolutely critical. And that since the moment race was born in early modern Europe, religion was racialized. And after that moment, she says, religion is embedded in the social race. So many... Ethno-activists today complain about Christianity, how it's all globalist, it doesn't care about any particular people. But Christianity is so flexible, as she's making the point here. Christianity is frequently being used on behalf of particular peoples. Christianity is inherently globalist or nationalist. In different types of places, Christianity seems to support globalism in other types and places it can be used to support uh, racial nationalism. Socialized social system. And so the question scholars should be asking is not if religious groups are racialized, but how and to what end? Well, people prefer to go to church and synagogue with their own racial group. People prefer to live around their own racial group. People prefer to hire members of their own racial group because people prefer their family and their extended family to other families. So religion lives on within the concept of race. And so, for example, while both skin color and religion existed before the category of race, they were, she notes, essential to its construction and given new significance upon being racialized. So it's typically unnecessary to make an argument for how skin color was racialized centuries ago and fuels contemporary racial processes. So when was uh, skin color racialized? When Europeans first encountered Africans. Africans were so distinct from every other people that they do that they began developing theories about race, right? That was after the encounter with Africans. And with respect to Jewish history, the, the relationship between religious identity and racial purity should come as no surprise, not just in the Inquisition or in the ways in which the very category of religion emerged as part of an Orientalist and colonial project that understood Jews and Judaism as a less evolved race, one that had... So racial purity is simply an extension of you know, fathers wanting children who are their own genetic seed, right? There's something wired into people that they tend to have much more care for those who are genetically related to them. Right? Parents have much more care for their own genetic children, generally speaking, than they do for adopted children of a different genetic type. I've been superseded by Christianity. 
but in Nazi Germany as well, we see how conceptions of religious and racial purity were championed by racial science that was merged with the nationalist project, blood and soil. At work in nationalism, our notion... And think about how much better we are off today now that we no longer get racial science, we get uh, racial anti-science. ...of pure blood of the national body who can be contaminated, polluted by the impure blood of the Jew, the immigrant, the... This is just an extension of, generally speaking, fathers don't want to pay for the upkeep of children who are not genetically their children. But men want to know that the children that they are paying for and raising are their genetic offspring, right? We tend to feel much more loyalty for peoples who are genetically related to us than people who are genetically different. African but also the pure blood of a nation's sons when spilled in sacrifice, sanctify the soil, right? So you have both aspects of the purity of blood at work. And while purity and impurity in Judaism, for example, was not traditionally linked to a person's moral status, Zoltan Balas notes that in Christian thought, which lays the foundation for our modern definitions of both race and religion, the idea of purity was also not just bodily, but as Kierkegaard put it, about a purity of heart a sign of virtue and morality that was not just action, but intention. And such ideas about inherent virtue were associated with a particular race and a religion, white Christians, and not with others. Well, most uh, traditional societies have had concerns about purity, purity of blood, purity of heart, purity of behavior, the sexual purity of the spouse. This is just written into the human condition. It's reality that uh, this lecture is most annoyed with. There's Jews, pagans, Muslims, Arabs, Africans, Hindus. So what does this relationship between race and religion mean for Jewish identity? And question in the chat, how does Judaism deal with adoption? You have the Lubavitch sect of uh, Hasidic Judaism, which discourages the adoption of uh, non-Jewish children. So there are various perspectives on on adoption. overwhelmingly is considered better in traditional Judaism to adopt Jewish children rather than non-Jewish children and convert them. Since the Holocaust in particular, Jewish thinkers have sought to distance themselves from defining Jews as a race, favoring the idea of Judaism as a religion. Yeah, prior to the Holocaust, it was the common way of referring to Jews as these are a race. This, This is a distinctive people. Making that distinction is all the more complicated because the two categories are imbricated, as we have seen. And I think it's important to note that ideas about Jews as a race were found within the Christian world, regardless of what color skin Jews had. Jews were on board with the description of Jews as a race. Jews had no problem of that until the Holocaust. Jews of color and white Jews were still racialized as Jews, even if and when they were other things as well. Well, there have always been Jews of color, color wasn't always interpreted as race. Furthermore, we know well from the work of scholars like Leora Benitsky, among others, that the notion of Judaism as a religion, like the category of religion itself, is a modern idea that has never... Right. Judaism is a tribe that, in a modern world, that developed this modern category of religion that is then ascribed onto Jewish tribal ways and Jewish tribal identity. There's there's no modern conception of religion in the ancient world. Never fully captured the whole of Jewish identity. 
Jews haven't ever fully discarded the idea that they are an ethnicity or a race, even as Jews and Judaism have become other things, a religion, a culture, a people, and after the founding of the state of Israel, a nation. So now you might ask, what does all Jews were a nation prior to the founding of the modern state of Israel, right? With the modern state of Israel, Jews became a nation state with the Jewish state of Israel. But Jews have been a nation for thousands of years. A nation does not have to be embodied by a state. All this have to do with contemporary Jewry and the matter of solidarity. How, I want to ask, have these notions of purity and impurity of race and religion function to shape the very contours of contemporary political solidarity? If you're willing to accept the presupposition thus far that race and religion are intertwined and that they're related to conceptions of purity and impurity, then I want to argue that will not always... So, yes, race and religion are strongly intertwined, right? You will find Korean Seventh-day Adventist churches in Los Angeles. You will find Filipino Seventh-day Adventist churches because people overwhelmingly want to hang out with their own type of race or, or people, right? That's just a natural human condition. We prefer those who are more genetically similar to us. It's explicit. These discourses and systems entangling race, religion, purity, and impurity are always still at work when religious and racial groups stand in solidarity with or in opposition to one another. The very notion of political solidarity rests on the idea that different groups of people come together to work toward a common goal. In her book, Race and the Politics of Solidarity, Juliet Hooker considers what forms the basis for solidarities and why certain solidarities are more likely than others. Yes, a solidarity of a shared you know, genetics is, generally speaking, going to be more powerful than a solidarity based out of shared ideological commitments. She writes, racial seeing has tremendous consequences for political solidarity, as solidarity is crucially dependent on vision and imagination. It's not accidental that, um, excuse me, sorry. I just lost my screen. Um, it's not accidental that solidarity is routinely described in terms of the capacity to envision a shared collective identity. And she points to Richard Rorty's claim that our sense of solidarity is strongest when those with whom solidarity is expressed are thought of as one of us. And what's perhaps the strongest expression of one of us, those who are members of our family or of our extended family? The embodied dimension of race, she notes, means that it operates through visible markers of difference so that racial others are not only invisible morally, but have actually been seen as invisible, inferior and thus not imagined. Right. If there are racial markers that correlate, say, with high levels of crime or with lower levels of crime or high levels of intelligence or lower levels of intelligence or higher levels of you know, pro-social behavior as opposed to higher levels of anti-social behavior, people are going to note that right? throughout nature. Right, you see distinctions based on color. Right? Colors signal something in nature. You can, you can argue that uh, nature distinguishes between different types of people as it distinguishes between different types of animals and plants, and that color signifies more significant differences than just skin tone. And as part of a desired collective. So drawing on Rorty, Hooker maintains that solidarity is always affective in the sense that, quote, feelings of solidarity are necessarily a matter of which similarities and dissimilarities strike us as salient. 
which similarity... Right, so it's not always going to be genetics, or it's not always going to be religion that unites people. It's not always going to be culture. Right? There are many different things that can bring us together. These and dissimilarities strike us as salient. And because solidarity is based on what Rorty calls fellow feeling, then to form solidarities which by nature involve bridging difference requires imagination. And Hooker describes this as the imaginative ability to see strange people as fellow sufferers. She suggests that solidarity should be created by increasing our sensitivity to the particular details of the pain and humiliation of others, unfamiliar sorts of people. Such increased sensitivity makes it difficult to marginalize people different from ourselves. So then, if this is the case... It's going to depend on the situation. If you're in a scary part of town and you see certain people who, from your reading or understanding, have a very high rate of crime, you're going to be very sensitive to that. In a different situation, you won't be as sensitive. If solidarities are matters of which solid similarities and dissimilarities strike us as salient... Why has the organized Jewish community so often chosen to align with evangelical Christian Zionist anti-Semites, but been ambivalent at best, not even about solidarities, but simply conversations or listening to lectures about a whole host of issues by activists or groups, including Muslim organizations, activists in BLM, and even Jewish groups who have supported so why indeed has the Jewish community frequently welcomed support from evangelical Christians? Because they see it as in their best interests. And why have parts of the Jewish community been ambivalent or hostile towards Muslims and Black Lives Matter activists? Because they see that as in their best interests. Palestinian liberation have been associated with the BDS movement. For a moment, I want to think about Christian evangelicalism and its relationship to conceptions of racial purity. In her work on white evangelical racism, Penn professor Anthea Butler notes that in the 1970s, Reverend Bob Jones III was worried less about immorality and its relationship to communism than he was about interracial relationships. Building on the Hebrew Bible admonitions against Israelite intermixing with non-Israelites, evangelical Christians argued whites should not mix with non-whites. And both Randall Balmer and Butler make clear that it was right so when you had the end of jim crow laws when you had the end of legalized separation policies many white southerners in particular retreated to religious distinctions to try to preserve their culture if you can't preserve your culture explicitly you will seek implicit ways of preserving your way of life racism not abortion that explains the rise of evangelical political activism in the 70s so while there is no doubt that this racist framework viewed Black people as impure, elevating white women as the most pure, in a hierarchy, Jews weren't far behind Black people. And yet it's at this same time that evangelical groups were actively mobilizing against a culture that was pushing racial integration that Christian Zionism emerges as a force in American religious and political discourse. Many evangelical Christians saw the 67 war as a sign, and as Aaron Engberg puts it, generally understood the Israeli victory in terms of prophetic fulfillment. The time of the Gentiles had ended, and the temple was going to be rebuilt. So for the rapture to commence, right, Jews have to return to the land. And when the apocalypse comes, 
those like the Jews who have not accepted Jesus will like all others. So distinctive groups such as Jews and Christians are going to have some things in common. They're going to have many things in contrast. You've got different groups with different interests, different understandings about history, different priorities. And so there are obviously going to be many ambivalences and hostilities as well as love between Christians and Jews. Sinners be judged and sentenced to eternal damnation. The religious fervor among evangelicals that was sparked in the wake of 67 only grew, and Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion's government viewed it as advantageous to build a relationship with evangelicals. Since the 70s, that relationship has only gotten stronger. And Yaakov Ariel notes that Jewish secular leaders chose very actively to look the other way, even in the face of evangelical Christian missionary effort. When you try to make allies, right, you don't always have the luxury of uh, choosing allies who have no potential downsides, who have you know, nothing troubling about them. But that's not how the world works. We take our allies where we can get them. We don't have any permanent friends or allies or enemies. As circumstances change, our need for particular allies and enemies will change. So that they would maintain this strong relationship with American Christian Zionist groups, assuring them that they would not interfere with their work. Indeed, it wasn't only secular Jews, but in 1988, Ariel notes that the magazine Nekudah Settlement, an organ of, of the Jew... And uh, chat wants to know if I've ever talked about the relationship between Branch Davidians and Seventh-day Adventists. So, yes, I, I've said this, that in the popular mind, there are two images of Seventh-day Adventists. One is that they're kind, nurturing people, and the other is that they give birth to all sorts of wild, crazy cults and dangerous apocalyptic movements such as the Branch Davidians. So Seventh-day Adventism is a very feminine church. Its membership is approximately, at least in the United States of the First World, its membership tends to be about two-thirds women. So Seventh-day Adventists tend to be very nurturing. On the other hand, there is a substantial apocalyptic component to the church that gives rise to these weird, threatening apocalyptic cults such as the Branch Davidians. Jewish settlements in Judea and Samaria published an article praising the International Christian Embassy in Jerusalem and said that they, unlike many Jews, realized that the Bible authorized the Jews to settle their land. So while Zionist alliances with anti-Semites who sought to deal with the Jewish problem... So yes, Seventh-day Adventists generally tend to be law-abiding, but in the... What was that genocide? Tutsis versus Hutus genocide in Africa, you had Seventh-day Adventists who were leading members of the genocidal party, right? So generally speaking, Seventh-day Adventists don't commit murder, right? They, they don't go off on deranged benders, but in certain times and places, contrary to their feminine nurturing persona, Seventh-day Adventists have partaken in genocide, have been leaders in genocide, and in crazy apocalyptic moments like the Branch Davidians. By helping them rid the Europe of the Jews, go back to the 19th century, and there's always been anti-Semitism. And a question from the chat, is genocide ever justified? Well, it certainly is in the biblical worldview. So... When you have two people living next to each other and there's a zero-sum conflict, right, you're only going to have peace when one group is triumphant and the other group is utterly defeated. So the way of the world is that uh, when you had battles, right, the, the winner would, uh, would devastate the loser, maybe just take their women and children, frequently wipe out the men, and then the losers would have to accept the religion of the winner. 
core of Christian Zionism, even when it's mixed with philo-Semitism. As Jim Sleeper put it, Pat Robertson, Jerry Falwell, and perhaps most notably John Hagee professed their great love for Jews in America with the unparalleled hypocrisy of men serenely confident of God's real plan, bringing an end to Jews and all non-believers in the Holy Land. So is there serene confidence of these evangelical Christians? Is it any different from the serene confidence of, say, liberals and leftists in their own hero system? We all have a hero system. That's how we get through life. We we want to ally ourselves with you know, heroic endeavors that will outlast us so we can overcome our own insignificance by being part of something transcendent. And so whether it's your devotion to science, whether it's your devotion to socialism, whether it's your devotion to free market capitalism or to art or to culture or to learning or to exercise or to gardening, we're, we're all serene believers in something. I'm not sure that evangelical Christian leaders are any more serene believers than, say, you know, left-wing socialist university professors. And this is how, among the insurrectionists on January 6th, we saw Israeli flags alongside six million is not enough t-shirts. This is not a contradiction. And anyone who is surprised by this has simply, I am sorry, not paid attention to the rhetoric. The choice to engage with Christian evangelicals from the beginning required, I would argue, a type of cognitive dissonance, or to use the language of Linda. Engaging with people who are different from us frequently requires cognitive, uh, such, such cognitive uh, acrobatics. Alcott a willful ignorance, which she said is not... A We're all willfully ignorant, right? We're all willfully ignorant of our friends. We all have like, naive and simple understandings of our friends. We, we see them as good people. We frequently just know them from one, one sector of life. We all tend to blind ourselves to contradictory evidence, right? We, if, if we knew what each other was thinking, right, nobody would have any friends. <laughs> Right. There, there are all sorts of forms of ignorance or forms of irrational belief that uh, serve us because they comfort us. It's a matter of neglect, but a substantive epistemic practice in which ignorance emerges from cognitive norms, structural privilege, and situated identities. So why has there been such an active forgetting, a willful ignorance about the frightening realities of anti-Semitism? So if your spouse had, uh, say, 30 sexual partners before you, right, you probably don't want to dwell on that. Uh, if your boss is engaged in a lot of shady activity, you probably don't want to think about that too much. If your friends have engaged in antisocial or criminal behavior, you probably don't want to think about that. So you naturally tend to block it out of your conscious mind, because if you thought about it, it'd drive you crazy. Semitism, as well as every other imaginable form of hate among evangelical Christian Zionists. Okay, hate. Hate is another word for you loathe that which threatens what you love. If you love some things, you're going to hate that which threatens them. The strange part about this alliance, I would say, is that while we might expect a kind of ideological purity test to be applied to these groups, rendering them impure because of their deep-seated anti-Semitism... No, if you need these groups, right, if you need their support... 
if they can provide money or political power or influence, then you're going to overlook those things about the groups that you don't like, right? We don't have the luxury in life of only making friends and alliances with people who are pure, with people who are wonderful, with people who are uncomplicated. Right, I'm going to leave it there for now. Sorry about the audio problems. Take care. Bye-bye.